0: Well, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke again this week, so please turn your Bibles there with me. This time, Luke chapter 12. We will be beginning towards the end of Luke chapter 12. So, it's a very long chapter. We'll be starting in verse 49. Last week, we looked into the Gospel of Luke in chapter 15, where we found the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, also more well-known as the prodigal son. And Luke chapter 15 is such an encouraging chapter, one that people in our time and place very much appreciate, and is a part of Jesus' teaching that most people in our culture can be attracted to. However, there are things in Jesus' teaching that are not as attractive, to people in our culture and that's what we find here in Luke chapter 12 starting in verse 49 and leading through chapter 13 verse 9. You know, I often wonder what would it be like if Jesus were in our state today. If Jesus were ministering in Nebraska, what would he say? What would his ministry look like? Would we recognize him as our Lord? Would we follow him? Or would we find him to be troubling in some ways? Would we even reject him or ask him to leave? Jesus Christ, who was he? How do we know what he would say, what he would do today? Well, the word of God is given to us so that we can understand what Jesus Christ said and did. And so by learning what he said and did, we can know what he is saying And what he is doing now. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As the Lord God says, I, the Lord, do not change. And so we have a reliable guide within the Holy Bible to be able to understand the person of Jesus Christ, and thereby to understand the person of God the Father. For he who has the Son has the Father. But he who denies the Son does not have the Father as well. I'd like to begin here in Luke chapter 12, verse 49. And we're going to be talking about some of the hard teachings of Jesus Christ. And those hard teachings I would summarize in two words. That here in our passage today, we're going to understand that Jesus is a divider and a judge. And that sounds rather odd in our culture, in our time, in our religious circumstances. We don't think of Jesus Christ as a divider, because we think of dividers as being bad people. And people who bring unity, those are good people. And we think of Jesus Christ as being a good person. So we don't think of him as being a divider. But if you look at the paragraph title here in Luke chapter 12, verse 49 in the ESV, it says, "'Not peace, but division.'" And then, not only are we going to learn about Jesus Christ the divider, but we're also going to learn about Jesus Christ the judge. And most people are familiar with the verse where Jesus says, Judge not, that you be not judged. And so we think that Jesus Christ was a very non judgmental, very accepting person. But as we look a little bit further into Scriptures, we find out that that is only part of the truth. And that there is another part of the truth about Jesus Christ that we need to recognize. Yes, Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, but he's also a divider. Yes, Jesus Christ is merciful and gracious, but he's also a judge. So let's take a look at some of these hard teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ here in the Gospel of Luke. Follow along in your Bibles as I start in verse 49. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished? Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This teaching of Jesus Christ, that he has come not to bring peace, but division, is preceded by a couple of comments that are somewhat cryptic and take some explanation. What does Jesus mean when he says, I came to cast fire on the earth? Well, as I was listening to different preachers and studying some of the, what has been written on this passage, I came up with basically three different possibilities for what Jesus could be referring to when he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. First, he could be talking about the Holy Spirit. For, after Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, he does send the promise of the Holy Spirit. And on that day of Pentecost, when the disciples first receive the promised gift, the Holy Spirit appears among them as tongues of fire resting on each one. And so it's possible that here he could be referencing the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's going to be pouring out on the earth. However, I don't think that's the best way of interpreting his statement that he came to cast fire on the earth, because in the context, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. In the context, he's not talking about a blessing, but instead, in the context, he's talking about judgment. If you back up and look at the previous section, he's talking about how we must be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. In verse 49, he says, the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect, and he talks about the judgment that will be meted out on those who are not ready, who are not prepared for the second coming of Jesus in terms of a master and his servants and the servants who are not acting according to the master's will receiving a beating when the master comes back and finds that they have not been acting responsibly. And so there's no break in between verse 48 and 49. 48 and 49 just flow together. And so I think it would be rather a strange turn if he was moving from the second coming in judgment and then talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I would expect a little bit more context to indicate that he was talking about the Holy Spirit here. And we always want to try to interpret each verse according to its context. How does it fit best with what is around it? And also, what follows is not about the Holy Spirit being poured out, but it is about judgment. And that's what he talks about there with the division that is coming upon the earth. Now, the second possibility is that the fire is a fire of division. And you could get that from the context with what follows in verses 31 and following. But I can't think of fire being a really natural portrait for division. Fire destroys a lot, but I don't necessarily think of it as a divider. And so that doesn't seem to be exactly the point either. I'd say as we already referenced with the previous context, that here the fire is the fire of judgment. Let me show you a verse in Luke chapter 3 that helps me to understand this in Luke chapter 12. Come back to Luke chapter 3 and look here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when John the Baptist was introducing Jesus Christ. And as John was ministering and as he was baptizing, notice what he says in Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, here you've got the Holy Spirit and fire baptism in context, but Some people, they confuse, they think that the Holy Spirit and fire are talking about the same baptism here, but no, I think this is two different baptisms. Either you are baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit, or you are baptized by Christ with fire. Why do I say that? Well, look at the following verse. Verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand, to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire fire. So the baptism of fire is not a good thing in this context, but being burned with the unquenchable fire is the judgment that Jesus Christ brings upon those who are not ready for his return, who have not believed on him, who have not followed him, who have not repented as he commanded. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the baptism of fire that john is talking about is a judgment and i think that that is also the idea then in luke chapter 12 when he says i came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled that there is a desire in the heart of god to cleanse the earth from all that defiles it and we as sinners unrepentant sinners those who are unsaved they are those who defile the earth with all kinds of sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. Blasphemies against God, sins against God, crimes against God. And and God has a desire in his heart to cleanse the earth from these things, which we saw in the very beginning of the Bible when he sent the waters of the flood to wash away the filth of man's sin. And so Jesus Christ is going to bring that fire of judgment. But before he brings the fire of judgment, he has a baptism to be baptized with. And here, as we compare this statement of Jesus where he says very similar things throughout the Gospels, we know that he is referencing his own death. Baptism is a symbol of representation. It's a symbol of being joined with something or someone. When we are baptized into Christ, we are joined with Christ. We're baptized into his righteousness. We're baptized into his good standing with God. But Jesus Christ, he came to be baptized into our sin and into our death. He became associated with our sin and death and bore that penalty. And so he had that baptism to undergo. In another instance, he asks his disciples, who want to be exalted in his kingdom, if they are able to go through the baptism that he is going to be baptized with where he was referring to his death, his martyrdom. And so he knows that before judgment that he is going to lay down his life and that this is something that weighs heavily upon him. He's looking forward to cleansing the earth, but he's not looking forward to suffering for our sins because it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As much as Jesus Christ loves God, as much as he loves us, no human being could look forward to becoming sin and falling under the judgment of God, which is what Jesus Christ was here to do. Now, with those verses explained, hopefully, we can look in the words of verses 51 to 53 about Christ the divider. He asked the question, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? And the question might naturally be answered, well, of course. did not that what the angels sang when you were born? Peace on earth, goodwill among men, Yea. Jesus says, well, yes, there, I, I did come to bring peace, if you would ask him this, but before the peace is accomplished, there has to be a dividing line. There has to be a division. And he draws our attention to how deep this division goes, by highlighting how this division runs through families. Blood is thicker than water is a statement that is well-worn because it's true. That family ties are the stronger ties when it comes to our relationships in this world. But even family ties are not as deep, not as strong, not as lasting as the truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Your allegiance to Jesus Christ is the most fundamental aspect of human nature. And for those who do not have allegiance, but instead have an animosity in their heart towards the way, the truth, and the life, well, that is the defining mark of their character. It's more important than family. It goes to the very core of our being. And here Jesus Christ, recognizing who he is, he's not just some man, he's not just some teacher that you can agree with or disagree with, but he is the truth of God in the flesh and the truth divides. You are either for the truth or you are against the truth. This is the essential nature of humanity. Come back with me in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 verse 50. Here we've got Jesus and his disciples, and the disciples saw someone casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but he wasn't following along with the disciples' group, and so they tried to stop him. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So Jesus makes it very clear. The dividing line isn't, Are you in this local group or not in this local group? The dividing line is, are you for the truth or are you against the truth? And so it's not about, do people listen to my preaching on Sunday morning? It's about, do they listen to the truth? Because there's a lot of people out there who are speaking the truth. It's not about, do they come to our church on Sunday morning? Well, then they're a part of our group. No, it's, do they listen to the truth? That's the dividing line. If they're not against the truth, then they are for you. And they don't have to be a part of your circle. They don't have to be part of your group. You can have a lot of things that you don't agree on. You can have a lot of things that you don't have in common. But if they are not against the truth, then you are essentially on the same side. Very important for us to recognize this that Jesus Christ is the dividing line. And if they are on our side of Jesus Christ, then they are our people. Whatever else we might have in difference. But not only is Luke chapter 9, verse 50 true, but look at Luke chapter 11, where we have the flip side of this same truth. Luke chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus also said this Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So if they're not against Christ, then they're for. If they're not for, then they're against. Both are true. There's no middle. You're either for or against the truth. That is the statement of Jesus Christ. Now, while George Lucas might think that only Siths deal in absolutes, God deals in absolutes. And God is good. In him there is no darkness at all. And here we have an absolute truth about the absolute nature of Jesus Christ. You are either for him or you are against him. And what we should be doing is trying to make it clear to people whether they are for him or against him. Now, let's go forward to the Gospel of John. John chapter 17. Now, Jesus the divider is the one who divides between falsehood and truth. For truth, I can... Hold this up. Falsehood and truth. That's the dividing line of Jesus Christ. Now, for those who are in the truth, what is God's desire but that we be unified? There is to be no division in the body, but we are to have the same love for one another. We should rather die than to cause division in the body of Christ. Unity is so important among God's people. But it's also important that we not pretend to have unity with those who are not in Christ. We must have discernment to know who is in Christ and who is not because that is the dividing line. Here in John chapter 17, I just wanted to draw your attention to verses 21 through 23, highlighting the importance of the unity that God calls us to have With all who are in Christ, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. There is an essential unity in the church that we must strive to maintain. We don't create the unity. Christ has created the unity. We maintain the unity. We preserve it. We keep it from being damaged by anything that would become more important to us than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our Lord and our God and is the basis for our unity. But for those who reject the words of Jesus Christ, for those who have a different gospel, for those who have a different Christ... They might use the same terminology. They might say, we love God the Father and we love Jesus Christ, his Son. But if they have a different concept of who God the Father is and who God the Son is, if they reject the words of the Son of God, then they are showing that they are of, in fact, a different spirit And so do not be deceived. Many deceivers, many false teachers, many antichrists have gone out into the world and we are not to have unity with those who are antichrist. If you have questions about that, I'd be happy to answer questions on any specifics. What about this group? What about that group? Is this person a Christian? Is this teacher teaching the truth? I'd be happy to talk about any questions you have. But the big idea here for this morning is Christ divides between the truth and the lie. And he came for that purpose. He came to divide families. God is more concerned about our relationship to the truth than he is about preserving peace and unity within a household. God is more concerned about our relationship to the truth than he is about preserving peace and unity in your family. Now, your family means a lot to you. But does the truth mean more to you? Jesus Christ came to divide father against son and mother against daughter. Here on Father's Day, Jesus Christ is more important than your relationship to your father. Jesus Christ is more important than your relationship to your mother. Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and your mother, and even your own life, in comparison with the love that you have towards him, then you are not worthy of him. Now, that is a statement of someone who knows who he is. He is the truth. Now, Jesus came to divide, and Jesus came for judgment. We already talked a little bit about judgment there in the opening verses, 49 and especially verse 49, but let's take a look at the warnings of judgment that come in the following verses. Let's go down to the next paragraph here, starting in verse 54. Jesus also said to the crowds. So Jesus was an interesting person. Crowds would gather around him. And when crowds came, he would speak to the crowd words that were difficult and hard. Words that would often make people go away angry and confused. Jesus Christ, he spoke the truth because he loved the crowds. Listen to what he says. When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now, calling people hypocrites is a good way to offend people. If Jesus were here, And he came and pointed out to me my hypocrisy. Would I welcome that? Would I say this? Thank you, Lord, you're right, I needed that. Or would I get offended? Would I say, oh, that's not what Jesus would say. My Jesus would never offend me so much. Well, the Jewish people, they were religious people. They thought of themselves as being on God's side. And and when the Messiah comes, he came and, and he didn't have a lot of positive encouraging words for their behavior but instead over and over again he points out their hypocrisy that they are pretending to be one thing but in fact they are something else now when you pull the mask off of people and you show what they really are they get defensive they get angry and they will come after you freedom of speech is great as long as it's not making me look bad Jesus was pulling the mask off. Why is this a mask? What exactly is the sin that Jesus is pointing out here? They can discern the weather. They can predict the weather. But they can't predict the spiritual times. They can't predict the coming of the Son of God, even though God's word told them when he was coming, told them all about who he was, where he was going to come from, what he was going to do, and yet so many people did not recognize him. They couldn't see. And also they couldn't see the coming judgment. They couldn't see the coming of Christ in mercy. And they couldn't see the coming judgment that was coming down upon them. They were so good at predicting the future in things of relative unimportance. But they were so bad at understanding what was going to be the outcome of their own actions. Of their own unbelief and hardness of heart. And not only that, Jesus also rebukes the crowds in verses 57 and following. He says, Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is interesting. I think there's a couple of levels that this is functioning on here. Let's just look at the human level first. People have a tendency to not judge rightly when we have conflict with one another. We have several ways of doing this. One, we can go on the attack. Two, we can just ignore it and pretend like it didn't happen. And either way what we're not doing is we're not willing to confess any wrongdoing on our part. If we just want to cover it up and go and look the other way, well, that means I don't have to confess any wrongdoing on my part. And if I go on the attack, well, I also don't have to confess any wrongdoing because it's all that person's fault. And so our self-righteousness, our self-centeredness comes out in injustice In our personal relationships, brother, sister, husband, wife, neighbors, co-workers, business partners, how many unresolved conflicts have we left behind? How much work and effort did you put into resolving those conflicts? Or did you just say, eh, I don't need them anyway. I got other friends. I got other people I can do business with leaving one broken relationship after another because you refuse to judge rightly. But this is also functioning on a second level. When you are unwilling to admit you're wrong, and therefore you have unresolved conflicts, there's not only human judges that can step in. You know, when we go to the human judge, we're hoping that the judge will see it our way. We're hoping that we can spin it away, we can say it in a way that is going to be deceptive, and, and that we can... You know, have victory in the eyes of the human judge. Whether you're going before a counselor as a husband and wife or whether you're going before the judge actually down at the courthouse. We all spin things our way hoping that we can get judgment in our favor. But instead of doing that, why don't you just admit your fault and love the people around you and be willing to be wronged and be like Jesus Christ instead of hoping that people are going to take your side? There's been a prominent divorce and libel hearing in the news lately. And, you know, each person is trying to get their story out. Trying to get as many people on their side as possible and hope that the jury will side with them. Why go through all that? Why not just love each other? Why not just forgive? Why not just admit you're wrong? But people will not do that. And then there's God. Don't wait for judgment day. Don't wait for God to sort it out. If someone has something against you, don't say, well, they're wrong, I know I'm right, and God will show that I'm right. You might be wrong. You might be self-deceived, because everyone tells themselves that. Everyone tells themselves that. So work it out. Don't wait for God to judge. This is what Jesus Christ is talking about both on the human level and on God's level as the ultimate judge. So he's confronting us with our spiritual blindness. He's confronting us with our self-righteousness and our inability to get along with one another and, and to settle our own matters, our own affairs. Now, I don't want to settle everything for my kids. I want them to learn how to settle it themselves. Learn how to be wronged. Learn how to admit you're wrong. Don't always have to go before mom and dad as the judge. Right? Same way that we should be in the church. Now, let's continue into chapter 13. The big questions in life. There were some present at this very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, there's the word, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's a powerful passage right there. Dan was talking about this earlier. Why the storms? Why the damage? Why the disasters? You know, one of the things that these Jewish religious people would tell themselves is that, well, God is sovereign, God is in control, and so if he allows for a judgment, like a tower falling on you, to happen well, it must be because you did something particularly bad. And and those 18 people, God providentially brought them there and the tower fell on them because maybe they were hiding an affair or maybe they were cheating in their business and, and God got them. But you know me, I'm doing what's right. It won't happen to me. And we all like to tell ourselves that, right? It'll never happen to me. Whether we're religious or whether we're not religious, everyone's got this idea that this stuff happens to other people. And Jesus is telling us this stuff is going to happen to everybody. It doesn't just happen to other people. And people have questions, they have wondering, well, why? Why does God allow this? When the towers fell and all those people died, when the tsunami came in and all those people were washed away, when the hurricane hits, When the suicide bomber is there, when the shooter shows up, couldn't God have stopped that? Why would God allow that to happen? Does God not care? Does He not have enough power? God does care, and He's got enough power, and we're all going to die because we're all sinners. That's what Jesus said. Whether you die when you're six or when you're 96, the penalty for sin is death. And it might seem like a big difference, but 10,000 years from now, when you're separated from God, it doesn't really matter whether you had 36 years or 96 years or anything in between. What matters is did you repent? Jesus Christ's message was repent. A gospel without repentance is no gospel. It's not the message of Jesus Christ. You don't come to God to stay as you are. You come to God as you are, recognizing that you need new life. You need radical change. You need a change of direction away from sin and back towards God. This repentance that Jesus Christ is calling for is a humbling of ourselves before God to say, God, what you say is true. What you say is right. Your moral standards in the Bible are the right way, the good way. And I'm not going to be saved by trying to keep your moral standards, but I'm going to be saved so that I can keep your moral standards. And Jesus Christ died to wipe out all of my sins, but he lives so that I can have the power of God in my life to be able to live the way that God wants me to live. You don't earn your salvation by good works, but be sure of this. You are saved unto good works, or you are not saved at all. You don't get to choose. Well, I'll take the forgiveness side of salvation, but I won't take the new life side of salvation. I'll, I'll continue in my sin, and I'll love my sin, and, and God and I can be friends because Jesus died for me. That's not the gospel, and that's not an option. And for those of you who are teaching five-day clubs and VBS and ministering at camp, I challenge you. Make sure that you are preaching repentance, not easy believism. We're not just saying a sinner's prayer. We're not just getting involved with church. We're not just singing songs that are happy and joyful. If there's no repentance... If there's not a willingness to say sin is sin and I don't want it and righteousness is good and that's the way I want to go then there's not an understanding of Jesus Christ in the gospel and there is no salvation. Jesus said, "Unless you repent, you will perish." And so, tell it to the young kids, tell it to the old folks, everywhere that you go, repent and believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the the gospel message of the apostles and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the time we have left, let's also look at verses 6 through 9. In the same vein, another iteration of this hard teaching of Jesus Christ concerning coming judgment. He speaks these things because he wants us to avoid the coming judgment. He speaks these things not to be harsh, not to be rude, but in love so that he will wake us out of our spiritual slumber and into genuine faith and repentance. Listen is what he says in verse 6. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Who's the man in this parable who owns the vineyard? Who do you think is the vine dresser? Well, in other places... The owner of the vineyard is God the Father. And the vine dresser is Jesus Christ. And so God the Father, he comes to Israel. Jesus is speaking to the Israelites. And he has planted Israel in a good land. And he's given them all that they need to be able to produce spiritual fruit. The fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things that are the opposite of what he's been rebuking here. And as Jesus Christ comes to Israel, he tells them, I don't see any fruit. That this is a barren fig tree. And the purpose of planting Israel in the land was that they would bear good fruit. And so if you plant something and it's not fulfilling its purpose, what do you do? You cut it down, you get rid of it. You replace it but notice the patience of the vine dresser he says let's give this fig tree israel one more chance let me dig around it put in the manure some good food that will help the plant to produce fruit and if it then does produce good fruit great but if not we'll cut it down this was israel's last chance As the Messiah came, as he sent the apostles throughout all of their villages and towns, preaching the good news, preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, demonstrating it with mighty power from God and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, was Israel going to produce good fruit? They rejected. They drove out the apostles. They continued in their hardness of heart. And the Romans came and the tree was cut down. God cut down the tree of Israel. The same thing he did in the Old Testament. When Isaiah was preaching against the sins of the people, the same way that Jesus was preaching against the sins of the people, you're not doing anyone any favors by not telling them about their sin. You are not following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ if you will not tell people about their sin. You can talk about other people's sin all day long, but you've got to talk about their sin. That's what the prophets did For Israel, that's what Jesus did for Israel. That's what we're called to do for Nebraska. We tell them about their sin. We call them to repentance. And if they repent, wonderful. But if not, what is going to happen? Well, in the Old Testament, God cut down the tree of Judah and Israel, the northern kingdom of Samaria, with the axe of Assyria. Assyria was the tool in God's hand by which he brought destruction to his people. It wasn't out of God's control. He wasn't saying, oh, I wish I could control those Assyrians better, but they're just bad people and they went and did bad things and and they hurt my people even though I love my people so much and even though they did so many bad things, I just wanted good things for my people, but oh, this is out of my control. No. God is a God of wrath and judgment. And if you warn people about the coming wrath, you are a good follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you do not warn people, you will be accountable before God for their destruction. The Apostle Paul said, I am innocent of the blood of all men, because I have not shrunk to declare to you the whole counsel of God, taking nothing away, adding nothing to it, but declaring the word of God to the people. That's our responsibility. That's our job as the Holy Spirit-filled church. Some people will accept and believe. Others will reject it. Some people will bear good fruit. Other people will continue in their sin. And judgment day will come. I'd like to end in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You know, Jesus Christ is in Nebraska today. He's also in Iowa. He's in New York, California, Australia, New Zealand, Africa, Scotland. Jesus Christ is in the world today. And there are people who are speaking the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit today. And they are getting the same reception that Jesus Christ got in his day. They're being called crazy. They're being accused of blasphemy. They're being marginalized. They're being slandered. And yes, some even are being put to death. But look at what we're called to in Second Corinthians chapter 2. This is a great passage, so triumphant. I want to start in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ, we are in Christ. Christ is in us. He's in the world today. And he's leading us in triumphal procession and through us, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Yeah, we all like being the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. And if we could find a way to not be an aroma of Christ to those who are perishing, that might suit our fancies, but it doesn't suit God's fancy. Now we are called to be the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. There's nothing you can do that is going to save everyone. There's no way you can repackage it. There's no way you can say it just the right way. There's no way that you can just be gentle enough that everyone is going to respond to the truth. There are those who are being saved, and there are those who are perishing. Our job is to be an aroma of Christ. Not just Christ in Luke chapter 15, which everyone likes, but also in Rome of Christ in Luke chapter 12, which is offensive. That's why he says in verse 17, who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word. So many want to peddle the word of God. They want to sell people the word of God. Here's the most sellable part of the Bible. Let's build our ministry on that. This part, the marketing group said that doesn't fly very well. We can leave that part out. That's a peddler of God's Word. That's not an apostle. That's not a prophet. That's not a faithful Christian. We are commissioned by God to speak in Christ, in the sight of God, from sincerity, from genuine love. Not everyone saw Jesus Christ's genuine love. Not everyone said, that guy, he's just so loving. He was that loving. Not everybody could see it, spiritually blind. It wasn't Jesus' fault that they couldn't see it. It was their own hardness of heart. It was their own unwillingness to repent. You can present the gospel, but you can't make people believe it.